Thank you, Sitlali. Good morning, church family. My name's Ted. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Hope Church. If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad uh, that you're here. And if you're visiting with us, what I'm about to say now is not intended for you. Uh, but as we continue in worship, those who are a part of this church family, we're going to give as a part of our uh, tithes and offerings. And so the ushers are going to come along and uh, pass along uh, the bags as we, uh, as we do that. As I was working on uh, the sermon for today, studying the text that Sit Lally just read for us, I realized that, that this, is, this is a message that is 100% for me. And this message is also 100% for you. There is, there's really no getting around what this text is about, the reality of sin. And the universal application of what took place, how paradise was lost by Adam and Eve when they fell into temptation, when they were deceived by the serpent. Uh, this message is for me and this message is for you. This message may not seem like good news and the truth be told, it's it's not, but when we go to a mechanic, we, we don't want a mechanic who's just going to sort of skirt around the issue and say, ah, you know, it's making that weird noise, but just drive. It'll, it'll fix itself, right? We don't want to go to a doctor that just says, well, you know, these x-rays and these, the CT scan doesn't look so good, but ah, you know what, just eat, eat, eat an apple a day and I'm sure, it'll, I'm sure we'll do, you'll do fine. No, that, that's not really helpful. We, we want to know what's wrong. And there is something that is wrong with all of us. And God created this world to be good. And yet there is something in this world that is so bad. And we are a part of the problem. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. The title for today's message is called The Fall. And we're looking at Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 to 7. And uh, we're going to bow our heads and, uh, and pray right now for, uh, for God's help. So Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We pray for your help and for your grace, for your power. Lord, I pray that the authority of your word would come across so clearly and the universal application for every single human being in this room, every single human being on planet earth, Lord, that, that you would speak and that we, Lord God, would hear your voice and that our lives would be changed as a result. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is the origin story of sin. Sin is something that we are affected by every day. We are affected by the sins of other people, those around us, those who are a part of our family or in our workplace. We are, we are, we are experiencing the, the, the effects of the sins in our society or in our culture or in our history. And not only that, sin is not only something that we experience coming from the outside in, but it's something that we experience every day from the inside out. And as we study this text, we're going to see three steps Three steps that lead towards sin. And if we can avoid these three things, we can avoid falling into temptation. The way that it happened for Adam and Eve is the way that it happens for you and I every day. 
day. So we fall into temptation when these three things happen. Here's the first one. We fall into temptation when we doubt God's goodness. We fall into temptation when we doubt God's goodness. Chapter 3 makes this this sort of surprising arrival in in the story. A new character shows up out of nowhere. We don't have his backstory. There's there's no prequel explaining how, how the serpent got there. I mean, you can look ahead to Isaiah chapter 14 or Ezekiel chapter 28 and, and, and see some themes about a fallen angel. There's some other uh, passages in the New Testament that talk about uh, Satan leading a rebellion, but all we're told that the story is unfolding and in walks the talking snake. I mean, this is a little bit weird. I got to be honest with you. But it says that the, the, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. So there's the serpent, and the serpent is crafty. There's no explanation about how he became crafty. There's no explanation about how he came to be able to talk. There's no explanation about, we know later he's going to be banished to slither along the ground. So did he have legs beforehand? We're not given any instruction on these things. At the very end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it sort of uh, uh, reveals who this serpent is. It says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Again, there's a little bit of a little bit of the background that Satan was thrown down to the earth. He together with his angels, some sort of rebellion happened. He's called a serpent. He's called the devil. He's called Satan. He's called a deceiver. That's who is that's who's introduced to the story here. But I want you to notice something in verse 1. It says that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent and the devil that was somehow symbolized by that serpent or was somehow possessing that serpent are both creatures that God had made. This isn't some sort of Star Wars, light side of the force, dark side of the force, dualistic God and the devil both being eternal, trying to fight it out. No, 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 no. Satan is a creature. He was created by God. God has complete authority over him. He doesn't do anything without filling out a permission form first in triplicate. He is a creature who has been made by God, who rebelled against God. Now, he's possessing or is symbolized in some way by this talking Snake, And again, we're trying to get into the book of Genesis. Before we apply it to our lives, we're trying to step into the shoes of the original audience. What were they hearing or thinking when they heard about a serpent? Remember that they had been just set free from Egypt. Just set free from the most powerful man in the world who wore on his head, we know from King Tut's tomb, we know from all kinds of different artwork and artifacts from ancient Egypt that the, that the Egyptian pharaohs wore a headdress and at the very, right over his head 
we'll zoom in on, on one more. Right over his head was a snake, a symbol of the power of the world and everything that the world has to offer apart from God, everything that the Pharaoh represented, slavery and oppression and temptation, the god Urias was, was an Egyptian god of, of power and wisdom and authority. And so that, that's what, that's what the, the original audience would have been thinking, this counter-kingdom to the kingdom of God. And the serpent, again, he's able to talk. He says in verse 1, did God actually say. Notice how the first thing Satan wants us to do is to doubt God's word, to bring confusion. Did God actually say, and then what he says is not what God said, did God actually say that you shall not eat any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 16. God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Satan replaced every with with none. (laughs) That's a big change. That's a big lie. That's creating confusion in Adam and Eve's mind. He exaggerates the prohibition. God said, God said, there's only one tree that you're not allowed to eat from, but Satan exaggerates it and says, you can't eat from any of the trees. And he completely omits God's provision in allowing them to eat from any of the trees of the garden. He makes God seem unreasonably restrictive. Notice what God is doing here. He's kind of flattering Eve. He's inviting Eve to evaluate whether or not God's commands are appropriate considering the circumstances. That's what he's doing. He probably hadn't even thought Eve was living in paradise. She was, uh, she was uh, living in perfect relationship with her husband, perfect relationship with God. It never crossed her mind to question whether God was good. It never, it never entered her mind to think that she as a creature would be able to somehow evaluate and judge the God who was judge over her. But that's exactly what the enemy does. It's kind of like when you start a new job and, and, you know, the other co-workers are talking about the foreman or the principal of the school or the, the, the chief executive of the company and, and, and you're talking around the lunch table and the, the boss isn't around and you're like, yeah, I mean, what, what, what's with this rule? Or how come we got to fill out this paperwork? Or why we got to, if I were in charge, it would be like this. The difference is, is that you're a human being talking about another human being. But Satan comes into the lunchroom and says, well, what about this creator God telling us that we should do this or that? You see how backwards that is? This is the God of the, of the, the creator of all things. Life, the, the, the life of Adam and Eve, the life of the serpent and was all dependent on him. They, they weren't on a, in a position to make that kind of evaluation. So then Eve tries to clarify, tries to answer, but the seed has been planted to doubt God's goodness. 
Eve says in in verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Take a look at Eve's paraphrase of what God commanded. So here's God's original command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Eve, she oh, totally omits the part about you can surely eat of every tree of the garden. She does say that you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's true. She adds something, neither shall you touch it, lest you die, but she also omits the part about you will surely die. See, here's what's going on in Eve's mind. She loses sight of God's goodness. She begins to doubt God's goodness. And so here's what Eve is doing. First off, she, in forgetting the part about that she's allowed to eat from any tree of the garden, she's forgetting about God's abundant generosity. Also, she exaggerates God's strictness. You can touch the fruit all you can touch the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all you want. But she makes God seem more harsh and more strict than he actually is. And then she also downplays the certainty of judgment. She gets rid of the of the phrase you shall surely die. So her her paraphrase misses some key parts and overlooks God's generosity. It exaggerates God's strictness and it downplays the certainty of judgment. Satan is always trying to convince us that God is holding out on us, that God is not generous, that if we trust in God, we will be missing out on something, that God is not good. We fall into temptation when we doubt God's goodness. Do you think God is holding out on you? Do you think that there is some sort of happiness or fulfillment outside of the boundaries of God's word and God's law? He's not. God is a God of abundant generosity. Think back to chapter 1 and to chapter 2. He created everything and called it good. He put the man and woman in paradise. They were naked and they were unashamed. God is not holding out on you. He is a provider. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. He is good and he does good. And if you are in Jesus Christ today, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, know that even the bad things in our life, God somehow causes them. Romans 8, 28 says, he causes them to work together for our good. If you are in Jesus Christ, God cannot allow anything to happen in your life that he will not turn around and use for good. God is good. He is not holding back on you. I love the way, I, I love the way D.A. Carson sort of, he, 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 he thinks about what Eve could have said in that moment, or what Adam could have said. Here's, here's a suggested quotation. Are you out of your skull? Look around. 
This is Eden. This is paradise. God knows exactly what he's doing. He made everything. He even made me. My husband loves me and I love him. And we are both intoxicated with the joy and holiness of our beloved maker. My very being resonates with the desire to reflect something of the spectacular glory back to him. How could I possibly question his wisdom and love? He knows in a way that I never can exactly what is best. And I trust him absolutely. And you want me to doubt him or question the purity of his motives and character? How idiotic is that? (laughs) Besides, what possible good can come of a creature defying his creator and sovereign? Are you out of your skull? That's what we need to say when we're faced with temptation. To, To remind ourselves that God is wise. He knows things we don't know and that God is good. He loves us and cares for us in ways that we could never imagine or anticipate. Satan loves to paint this picture of God who's just up there making sure no one's having too much fun. Hey, turn the music down. Hey, hey, settle down over there. That's not who God is. He is not holding out on you. He created us to live in a paradise. He is good and his ways are good. So we fall into temptation when we doubt God's goodness. Secondly, we fall into temptation when we deny God's word. We fall into temptation when we deny God's word. Satan moves from just kind of casting doubt or confusing the language. He replaces uh, every tree with with any tree. He he reverses the prohibition and the provision. And he, he has Adam and Eve sort of swirling, thinking this or thinking that. And now, now he's kind of disoriented them. They sort of lost their footing. Now he goes in for the kill, for the knockout punch. And he just flat out lies. Verse 4, he says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. He just flat out lied. Uh, Jesus told us this is what he does. In John 8, 44, we need to understand that if, when, we're tempta- when we're tempted, we're going to be facing lies. Jesus said, talking about Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning, from Genesis. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So Satan just lies. And what does he lie about? He denies the doctrine of divine judgment. Remember, when he first approached Eve... He sort of puts Eve in the position of being able to judge God. Don't you think it's a little bit unreasonable that you can't eat any of the trees of the garden? So Eve is thinking, wait, can I even evaluate God? Can I judge God? Then the next step that Satan does is, so he he already established that Eve thinks now that she can judge God. And then he tells this lie to say that God has no right to judge Eve. That she will surely not die, that there is no judgment. There's no accountability. There are no consequences. I heard someone say, sin will make you stupid. (laughs) 
And that when we sin, we forget that every action produces a, a reaction. Every action produces consequences. There are, we, we don't think it through all the way to the end. When you're considering stealing something, when, when you're considering sinning sexually, when, when you're considering telling a lie, follow it all the way to the end. Yes, it might bring you relief or pleasure right here in the moment, but think about it all the way to the end. Think about having to explain things to your, to your parents or to your spouse or having to explain things to your, to your boss. Yes, it, it might work out fine for you right now, but there are always, always, always consequences. And don't just think about explaining it to your parents or to your spouse or to your boss. Think about explaining it to God. Because ultimately, He is the judge. But Satan is always trying to say, there's no consequences. Don't just live right here in the moment. Don't think about the future. Don't think about eternity. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Again, he's saying God's holding back on you. God knows God is kind of arranged, he's kind of conspired to, to, to make sure that you don't get access to the fruit. God is insecure. He doesn't want you to, to be like him. God is holding back. God knows that if you were to ever eat that fruit, it would all fall apart for God. And it would all be good for you. But it's a lie. God was not holding back. When God says, don't, he's, 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 he's saying that because he doesn't want us to hurt ourselves. He doesn't want us to have to deal with the consequences that, that come. God is not holding back. God has been upfront with you. God is not insecure. God is not holding things to himself. God gives. Look at I mean, the lie here doesn't even make sense. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Think about Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He's talking to Eve who has been made in God's image and likeness, image and likeness, and telling her that she will be like God. She already is like God. She's made in his likeness. She's made in his image. What more would she want? She can't become the creator. Because she's created. She can't, she can't have the knowledge of good and evil like God does because she's finite. She's made from a rib. Adam's made from dust. So Satan is, is offering something to Eve that Eve already has. She's made in God's likeness. So Satan here just flat out denies God's word. He denies the reality of divine judgment, and he also denies the reality that Adam and Eve have this special privileged relationship as being made in the image and likeness of God. He denies both of those things. He denies God's word, and that's what we see happening in our world 
on a macro level as our society is taking all of these foundational truths that we've been looking at in Genesis in terms of creation, in terms of the sanctity of life, in terms of skin color, in terms of manhood and womanhood, in terms of marriage, and he's casting doubt on all of these things in our world. And in our world, we see all of this confusion and we see a flat-out denial of all of these foundational truths. It's happening on a macro level. But loved ones, this, on a micro level, this happens to us every day. We start to doubt God's goodness. And then we start to believe or deny. Yeah, I know God's word says this about telling the truth, but in this particular situation, I can't tell the truth. I have to lie. I know God's word says this about marriage and, and, and divorce, but in this particular situation, I can't follow God's word. I know what God's word says about sexuality and desires and lust, but in this particular, in my unique situation, I, I have to deny God's word. We do it time and time Again, that, that's at the core of temptation, doubting God's goodness, thinking that he's holding back on us, and then denying his word, disobeying his word. Then the story takes a very tragic turn. In verse 8, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Again, Adam is there this whole time. The conversation is happening between Eve and the serpent. Adam is there the whole time. Adam never says anything. Adam missed his moment. Adam was put in the garden to work it and to keep it. Remember, keep means to guard Evil had come into the garden. It was Adam's responsibility to protect the garden, to protect his wife. And Adam did nothing. And as Eve looks at the fruit, she sees that it's good for food, that it's a delight for the eyes. But what really pushes her over the edge is that it was to be desired to make one wise. So we fall into temptation, firstly, when we doubt God's goodness, secondly, when we deny God's word, and then thirdly, when we desire God's throne. When we desire God's throne. You see, Adam and Eve in this moment are not just choosing to become lawbreakers. They're not just rebels. They're, they want to become legislators, <laughs> They're not just lawbreakers, they're lawmakers. They want to be the ones with the knowledge of good and evil. They want to have access to the same information so that they can decide, so that they can judge what is right and what is wrong. And it's really important that we read the Bible carefully because so often we think that Eve was lured by three different things. That it was good for food. And maybe she was hungry or she was a, a foodie and she thought that's just so delicious. <laughs> and that it was beautiful. It was a delight to her eyes and that that somehow lured her in. But remember, we've already read about the Garden of Eden. If you look over at, at Genesis chapter 2 verse 9... 
It says, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Every tree in the garden was pleasing to the eyes and was good for food. Every tree in the garden was already good for food. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food, but so was every other tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a delight to the eyes, but so was every other tree. Those two things, they're a wash. That wasn't where the temptation really came from. That's just mere observation. Oh, it's a tree like all the other trees in the garden. It wasn't especially beautiful compared to the other trees. It wasn't especially delicious or nutritious compared to the other trees. What pushed Eve over the edge was the desire to make one wise. To be in control, to have access to the information and to have the authority to make her own decisions about right or wrong, the knowledge of good and evil. Now again, we got to be thinking in terms of the original audience. The Hebrew word there for, for desire, what's to be desired, is the Hebrew word hamad. And the people of Israel had just heard the word hamad come through loud and clear. As they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai and God is speaking the Ten Commandments, commandment number ten is this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That is the word hamad. She coveted the, 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 the wisdom that only belonged to God. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. Why? Because it's your neighbor's. You shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife because she belongs to your, your neighbor. You, she's married to your neighbor. Or the servants or his ox or his donkey. That's a nice donkey. But the, the, that word there means to desire something that doesn't belong to you. And the people of Israel had just been warned. All of the other commands in the Ten Commandments refer to actual actions like worshiping another god or, or bearing false witness or committing adultery. The Tenth Commandment actually deals with where sin comes from. Why do we steal? Why do we bear false witness? Because we want stuff. We covet. We desire. And the first sin was breaking the last, well, it was really breaking almost all of the commandments. But the first sin had that same language as the last commandment. She desired something that wasn't hers. Wisdom belongs to God. If you want wisdom, you don't go to a tree. If you, don't, if you want wisdom, you don't go to yourself, desire to make one wise. No, if you want wisdom, where do you go? You go to the Lord. And God had created Adam and Eve and given them all of this beautiful garden in paradise. Gave them dominion over everything on the planet. And yet, not only that, he gave them himself. Hey, Adam and Eve, you want to know something? Just ask me. Hey, Adam and Eve, you want some wisdom? Just ask me. James chapter 1, God gives wisdom generously without reproach. You don't need to go to a fruit on a tree. You don't look at yourself. You're supposed to look to the Lord. 
Romans chapter 1 tells us, I mean, this is a bit of a summary of what happened with Adam and Eve. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Thanks God for all of these other trees. No, they lost sight of what God had given and said, why can't I eat from that tree? They didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, thinking if I eat this fruit, I'm going to become wise. They became fools. And then the book of Proverbs, the book of of biblical wisdom says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Not from eating from some tree, not from getting it for yourself. No, it's, it's relating to God rightly, fearing him. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't take the fruit and think that now you can understand good and evil. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. How do we turn away from evil? By fearing the Lord. By not being wise in our own eyes. But that's what pushed Eve over the edge. The desire to make one wise. And so now, human beings, after Adam and Eve, apart from the grace of God, are just trying to navigate through life, but they don't know which way is north. Because there's no fear of the Lord, and there's no relating to God. There is, there is a a knowledge of good and evil, for sure. Adam and Eve did acquire knowledge, but they didn't know how to use it. The first thing they did was like, we got to make some clothes here, we need some fig leaves, They did have knowledge, but they didn't know how to use it. We live in a world that wants to define right and wrong on our own terms, and morality is continually changing, and we talk about the idea of progress, that somehow we're we're better now than we we were in, in 50 years ago or 500 years ago. And definitely in some categories, we may be better or we've, we've had an, an awakening or an enlightenment in terms of we need to stop doing this. And that's, that's a evidence of God's common grace when a society recognizes that. But we are not be- we're not better than Adam and Eve. We may sin in different ways. We may sin in ways that are more sophisticated, but there's no, there's no progress. We're not getting better as, as a human species. We have this knowledge of good and evil, but at times, yeah, we can respond rightly because we're all made in the image of God. And sometimes, we, yeah, we see evil and we know how to respond to it. Other times we see evil and we don't know how to respond to it or we think that it's good. You see, here's the thing about lies and deception. Satan didn't say, if you eat from the tree, you'll turn into a hippopotamus. Like that, that's a lie, but there's no point. It's so absurd, there's no point in making that kind of a lie, right? Every lie contains a half-truth. And everything that Satan promised to Eve in one way, shape, or form, came true. He said, you you surely will not die. And when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they did not immediately die physically. He said in verse 4, your eyes will be opened. Verse 7, it says, the eyes of both were opened. And also in verse 4, he said, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. At the end of the chapter, God says, man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. the, the, The sad part is not that what Satan said would happen 
didn't come true, the sad part is that what Satan said would happen kind of actually did. It, and what so often happens when we sin, even though sin makes us stupid, sometimes we can see, you know, a little bit in the future. But when we sin, the response never turns out quite exactly how we expected. Adam and Eve didn't think that as soon as they had knowledge of good and evil, the first thing that they would do, having been living in the garden, being naked and unashamed with nothing to hide, they wanted to hide from one another. And they wanted to cover themselves. That was an unintended consequence. And, and yeah, sure, they didn't die immediately, but fast forward to Genesis chapter 5, spoiler alert, Adam and Eve died. They're not, coming to, they're not walking through the church doors this morning. They're not still alive. They did die. So they were half-truths, and some of what he said came true, but they end up hiding from one another and hiding from God. Bible scholar T. Desmond Alexander sums it up like this as Adam and Eve are interacting with the serpent. He says, in light of their royal status and their divine commission to rule over the animals, remember, they were given dominion, and they were told to fill the earth and subdue it. He says, it is especially noteworthy that Adam and Eve obey the serpent's instructions rather than those of God. That should be a capital G, sorry. By submitting to the serpent, Adam and Eve fail to exercise their God-given dominion over this crafty animal. Obviously, I made this slide too late last night. (laughs) You see what's happening here? God commanded the man and the woman to be fruitful, to fill the earth and subdue it, to have dominion over all the creatures. God told the humans to have dominion over the animals. That's what Genesis 1 says. Let's go to the next slide. But what happens in Genesis 3 is an animal commands the humans to try to take over for God's position. Do you see how backwards that is? Satan is always trying to reverse and invert what God's original design and intention is. It had all fallen apart. But loved ones, look with me at verse 8. Verse 8 and verse 9 are are somewhat sad and tragic, but they're also somewhat beautiful. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's sad in that we're given this little bit of window right at the end, right when they're about to get kicked out of the garden. We're given this little picture of what life in the garden was like. God walked around the garden. And this was his final stroll. It says he was walking in the cool of the day, or it could be translated that that, the wind, the the spirit. He was walking in the spirit. And that's what everyday life would have been like. In perfect relationship with one another, no fig leaves. In In perfect relationship with God. But now they're hiding in the trees. And I love... Verse 9, it says, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? 
God, God came looking for his children. You have a little toddler, you know, they get their hands on some Skittles that they're not supposed to have, right? They don't come right up to you and are like, Right? They find some little nook or cranny, some sort of corner, and there, and you know what's going on, right? But you walk in and you say, hey, what are you, what are you doing, right? You're, you're asking the question, not, not because you, you need the information. You know full well what's going on. But we come looking, Right? Because we want to teach our kids. We want to help them. God came looking for his kids. And listen, we've all doubted his goodness. We've all denied and disobeyed his word. We've all desired his throne. We've all wanted to be in charge ourselves. And that's led to all kinds of dysfunction in our lives. It's broken our relationship with other human beings. There's fig leaves in between us. It's broken our relationship with God. We hide in the trees But our Father comes looking for us. And ultimately, He came for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And He wanted people to understand who His Son was. So His his Son went and got baptized. and, And the Spirit descended on Him like a dove. And then the Father said, hey, hey, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, goes out into, not into a garden, he goes out into the wilderness, and he's not surrounded by trees that he can eat from any time that he wants. He doesn't eat or drink for 40 days. And then that character from Genesis chapter 3 shows up again. And he starts creating confusion or doubting God's goodness. If you're the son of God, how come you got nothing to eat? Why don't you turn the stones into bread? And, and how come you were just born like in a stable and laid in a manger? You should be in a palace. And why don't you jump off this cliff to see if God is really going to look after you? And he starts doubting and, and denying what God's word says. And Jesus, always trusting in God's goodness, And always believing the truth of God's word. He's tempted by the serpent. Look look at what the serpent says to him. And the, the second time he tempts him, he says, The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. And I give it to whom I will. Who delivered all the kingdoms of the world to the snake. Adam and Eve did. When they ate the fruit, rather than letting God rule over them and them rule over the Satan, the serpent, they chose to have the serpent rule over them. And Jesus came to set us free from Satan's grasp. Just like Moses was sent by God to set the people free from the guy with the snake on his headdress. Jesus was sent to save us from the ultimate serpent. So Satan says, well listen, if, if you just bow down and worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. 
Sin and temptation is always, it's really just a matter of worship. What are you going to worship in the moment? Are you going to worship that thing that you're willing to lie for, that person you're willing to, uh, to cheat for, or whatever that is? Or are you going to worship God? Are you going to worship yourself and your own fulfillment, or are you going to worship God? And loved ones, exactly where Adam failed, and exactly where you and I fail every day, Jesus succeeded. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And I could, I could take you, time is running out, I could take you to Romans chapter 5 or 1 Corinthians 15 to talk about the theological implications of Jesus being like a second Adam. You've got a man of the dust and Jesus is a man of heaven and we all bear the image of Adam, but we'll, we now bear the image of Christ and there's beautiful theological and textual uh, interaction there that we could talk about, but I want to be very practical. Adam failed, we all fail, but Jesus was victorious. So then what do we do? So I just want to take you to one more place. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says, we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, who in every respect Sorry, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. He was tempted like Adam and Eve were. He was tempted like you and I were and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We draw near to the throne of the high priest who is our sinless savior. The throne that we desired for ourselves. Whenever we sin, we're putting ourselves on the throne. Sin is treason. We're putting ourselves in the place of God. But the way to fight sin, the way to fight sin on the front end when we're tempted and the way to fight sin on the back end when we've given in, it's the same thing. Come to his throne. And plead for mercy and grace, God. I pray for mercy and grace to be able to say no to temptation and to say yes to your goodness and yes to your word. And God, forgive me. I come before your throne to pray for mercy and grace and I confess to you that I have doubted your goodness and denied your word and desired your throne. It's the same thing. And so... We're going to witness today three baptisms, three pictures of three people, Mylene and, and Kayla and, and Matthew, and we're going, to, we're going to hear about how God came looking for them. And they're going to share their testimony about how they are placing their faith and their trust in Jesus, the one who was baptized and declared to be the Son of God. Today, they are being baptized in identification, saying that I, I, I too want to become a son and a daughter of God because he succeeded where I failed and he died in my place to pay the penalty for my sin. So let's bow our heads together as we look forward to hearing of these testimonies. Dear God, thank you so much for your word Thank you so much, Lord, that although the enemy is always trying to deceive us, always trying to distort and deny your truth, always trying to contradict it and bring confusion, thank you that your word is so crystal clear about what is right and what is wrong, so crystal clear about what is good and what is evil. Thank you, God, that you invite us to rely 
on you as our source of wisdom, to rely on you as the source of mercy and forgiveness. God, I I pray that we would not be complacent about sin in our lives, but that we would put it to to death by the power of the Holy Spirit as we depend on your mercy and grace. Lord, we pray for us now as we get to witness these baptisms. Lord, we thank you for your favor. We thank you for the work that you've done in these individuals' lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.